Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Huge Pex, the suplex throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. And of course, do not forget you can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher as well. And on that note, A quick shout-out to another great country where our listener numbers were strong this week. Ecuador, we love you. Thanks a lot for listening, and I hope you continue to do so, even though you probably have better things to do, like go outside and enjoy your perfect weather. Also, big props to the United Kingdom, where the number of listeners last week actually surpassed the number of listeners here in the United States. That's pretty goddamn impressive. So thank you very much to all you bloody wankers and wretched toe rags. And a final shout-out to Adam from the Rundown Wrestling Podcast, who did a great job on this show last week. Please do not forget to check out the Rundown when you get a chance. All right. Now, before we jump into the show this week, I want to take a quick second to discuss WrestleMania 32. I know everyone's probably given their take on it already since this episode is going up eight days after the show aired, but I wanted to give my two cents anyway. To say that WrestleMania 32 had a distinct Attitude Era feel to it would be an understatement. Just take a look at the list of Attitude Era stars who wrestled or made an appearance. Triple H, The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Shawn Michaels, Mick Foley, Chris Jericho, Lita, The Dudley Boys, Goldust, Mark Henry, Big Show, Kane, The Undertaker, and Shane McMahon, who of course had the spot of the night when he jumped off the top of the Hell in a Cell cage, which was more than a little reminiscent of a very famous Attitude Era moment which takes place in the summer of 1998. Let's take a listen to that Shane spot because it was pretty amazing. Shane O'Mac is on top of Hell in a Cell! Shane, don't do it! can't do this! Shane, Shane, no! No! Oh my god! Damn it, Shane! Stop it! Shane, don't do Do this! No! Shane! No! No! So, in regard to WrestleMania 32, I guess what I'm saying is, thank you to the WWE for reminding your fans of the Attitude Era so they will gravitate toward this fine podcast. I appreciate it. Now, the overall opinion of WrestleMania 32 seems to be trending rather negatively, but I thought it was solid, albeit far too long. The wrestling was pretty good across the card, although many of the results were rather surprising, e.g. Jericho beating AJ Styles cleanly, Baron Corbin winning the Andre the Giant Battle Royal, Zack Ryder winning the Intercontinental title for one whole day. The Women's Championship match was the standout for me, with the latter match and Hell in a Cell also being very good. Triple H versus Roman Reigns didn't really do it for me, and the fact that Brock Lesnar dispatched Dean Ambrose with relative ease did not seem like that great of an idea. But such is life. The Undertaker beating Shane McMahon was the right call, but it seemed to be rendered pointless one night later when Vince just let Shane run Monday Night Raw anyway, even though he clearly told him he would have to beat Taker to gain control of the show. I guess we'll have to see how that plays out. Still a lot of time. But all in all, I'd probably give WrestleMania a B- slash C+. Solid but not great, and that's good enough for me to mildly recommend it. I just hope the show doesn't last seven hours, counting the pre-show, next year. All right, so let's get into the podcast, shall we? It's Monday, February 23rd, 1998, and we are 
pre-taped six days in advance from Waco, Texas, a city which is now known for the infamous 1993 standoff between the United States government and the Branch Davidians, a cult led by their wannabe prophet David Koresh. Why do I mention this? Because tonight on Raw, right here in Waco, we get the downfall of another shitty group led by a douchebag wannabe messiah. Sometimes, art imitates life. We open with a recap of last week's match between the Legion of Doom and the Quebecers, where the New Age Outlaws threw Hawk into a dumpster and then were subsequently chased off by a cheer-wielding animal. However, this resulted in a count-out loss for LOD, continuing their lengthy losing streak. Tonight, they faced the Outlaws in a match for the WWF Tag Team titles. Cue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Right off the bat, as the cameraman is panning the front row, we get an up-close-and-personal shot of a fan holding up a sign which just says, Jim Ross, you blow. I mean, of all people on the roster, you're going to go after the one guy who's clearly the best at his job? Poor form, dude. Poor form. I posted a picture of that sign on our Twitter, at RawAttitudePod, if you want to give it a look. We open with the aforementioned WWF Tag Team title match, Champions, the New Age Outlaws, versus Challengers, the Legion of Doom. It should be noted that even though they are obviously no longer in their glory days, LOD are still mega over. I suppose the term Road Warrior Pop is called that for a reason. This was actually a pretty decent match, although the finish was somewhat screwy. LOD actually hit Road Dog with their incredibly dangerous finishing maneuver, the Doomsday Device, but instead of just making the three count when Animal pinned Road Dog, referee Earl Hebner instead concentrated on Hawk, who had his hands in the air and was celebrating their presumptive victory. While Hebner was telling Hawk to leave the ring instead of just, you know, counting the pinfall, this distraction enabled Billy Gunn to sneak in behind Hebner's back, hit Animal with one of the tag belts, and Road Dog then covered him for the victory. After the match, Animal actually got in Hawk's face and they started pushing and shoving. Surprisingly, the tensions boiled over and they then started beating the crap out of each other as Commissioner Slaughter and other WWF officials attempted to separate them. Animal left the ring and started walking up the ramp, but then he turned around, ran back into the ring, and started fighting Hawk again. The two teammates were finally separated and Animal left the ring for real this time. This segment was pretty effective and really seemed to legitimately surprise the crowd because we had never actually seen Hawk and Animal fight each other before. Admittedly, I don't remember this brawl between them even happening, so it certainly caught me by surprise too. After a commercial break, Jim Ross told us they were still scuffling with each other back in the locker room, so they're really playing this up as though the Legion of Doom could be finished. My question is this, if they ever actually have a match with each other, would it ever end or would the constant no-selling on both sides result in a week-long stalemate? I hope we find out. Next match is NWA North American Heavyweight Champion Jeff Jarrett, accompanied by Jim Cornette, versus Ken Shamrock in a non-title match. Just like last week's Jarrett versus Owen match, I marked out a little bit when I saw we were getting Jarrett versus Shamrock on tonight's card. I've enjoyed the work of both of these guys so far in the podcast, even though Jarrett is currently stuck in this stupid NWA angle. And apparently, the Waco crowd is more than happy to give each man the respective reaction they desire as we get several chants of Shamrock and Jarrett sucks. Well done. This was another good match with a somewhat goofy finish. With Shamrock punching Jarrett in the corner, referee Tim White attempted to intervene, but Shamrock inadvertently hit him in the face. With White huddled over in pain, Jim Cornette snuck into the ring and attempted to hit Shamrock with his tennis racket. Instead, however, Shamrock ducked and Cornette hit Jarrett in the head instead. Shamrock then put Jarrett in the ankle lock right as Tim White recovered. However, Jarrett couldn't tap out because he was unconscious, so White checked on him and put a stop to the match. I was actually reminded of the Brett Austin finish from WrestleMania 13 where Austin was put in the sharpshooter and never gave up, but the referee stopped the match anyway. And who was that referee? Ah, yes, Ken Shamrock. Now, for the record, this match was nowhere near the caliber of Brett Austin. I'm just saying the finish was sort of kind of similar. 
After the match, Michael Cole went up to Jarrett and incisively said, Jeff, this couldn't have been your game plan heading into tonight. Probably a safe bet, getting hit in the head by a tennis racket likely was not what Jarrett had hoped for. Jeff then simply replied, I think it's time for me and Cornette to go our separate ways, and we then headed to commercial. And just like that, the NWA has seemingly lost its only entertaining wrestler. When we come back from break, Jerry Lawler is backstage in the locker room with Road Warrior Animal. Lawler asks him about the potential breakup between him and Hawk, who had been as close as a brother to him. Animal screams he has no brother anymore, which Hawk hears as he was apparently randomly walking by, so they resume fighting each other until WWF officials, Bradshaw, the Headbangers, and some random jobber separate them once again. Next up is a six-man tag match, the Disciples of Apocalypse, Chains, Eight Ball, and Skull, versus the Truth Commission, Kurgan, Recon, and Sniper, accompanied by the Jackal. This was not a good match. Mercifully, it ended when Kurgan put the head claw on Eight Ball, which resulted in him being pinned for the three count. For some reason, Chains broke up the pinfall a second too late, and the DOA then chased the Truth Commission out of the ring, which seemed to make no sense because the DOA then left the ring, and all four members of the Truth Commission went right back into the ring, so okay. After the match, for some reason, the Jackal is yelling at Sniper and asking why he didn't tag in at any point, even though, I repeat, the Truth Commission won this fucking match. Who gives a shit if he never took part in it? A win's a win. Come on, man. Much like last week, Jackal once again slapped Sniper, but this time Sniper grabbed Jackal by the throat. This resulted in Kurgan putting the head claw on Sniper as Recon pleaded for Jackal to tell him to stop. Instead, Jackal then slapped Recon as well, but Recon refused to fight back. Kurgan then dragged Sniper backstage by his head as Recon yelled at Kurgan to let him go. And just like that, ladies and gentlemen, I am now a very happy camper because this was the final Monday Night Raw match for Recon and Sniper. They will have two more matches calling themselves the Truth Commission, one on an episode of Shotgun Saturday Night and the other at WrestleMania 14, but they no longer have any more matches together on Monday Night Raw in the Attitude Era. Obviously, Recon will eventually be repackaged and call himself Bull Buchanan, and Kurgan is still sticking around for a while, but the Truth Commission team of Recon and Sniper is officially done on Raw, so you know what that means. Thankfully, at long last... We can now send these two jobbers to Wrestler Heaven. feels so good. Long overdue, if you ask me. Long overdue. If only they could have taken Kurgan with them, but we'll unfortunately have to save his induction for a much later date. Up next, Jim Ross segues us into a pre-taped segment from Shawn Michaels' home in San Antonio. China is randomly sitting in a chair talking to some blonde woman who HBK awkwardly kisses on the cheek. HBK says China took Steve Austin's best shot, and she is still standing. In regards to the rumors of DX and China suing Austin, Michael says DX does not get involved in legalities and they believe in policing their own, so that angle from last week's Raw was basically a complete waste of time. Triple H says that the WWF is only interested in ratings, so everyone should stay tuned over the next four weeks in the lead-up to WrestleMania because they're going to be causing absolute hell and making sure that the show is, quote, X-rated. 
HPK then picks up a pool cue and says they'll start wreaking havoc next week because Mike Tyson, Steve Austin, and Owen Hart will all be in attendance at that time. So basically, I guess that means we can switch over to WCW tonight then? Triple H finishes the segment by saying, Discretion is advised, but will be completely bleeping ignored as Sean hits the cue ball and causes the other pool balls to scatter. Now, funny enough, you may recall that I had mentioned how Sable's wardrobe malfunction from last week was featured on the episode of Jerry Springer's Too Hot for WWE called Bloopers and Blunders. Well, interestingly enough, on that very same episode, you can also see an outtake of this moment as Hunter went to hit the cue ball, but instead it shot completely off the table as he and HBK unsuccessfully attempted to stifle their laughter. In fact, here's that clip. Your discretion is advised, but it will be... Completely ignored. Up next, Sunny heads to the ring to waste her talents yet again by being used as a guest ring announcer. We then see a sign in the crowd which eerily predicts the future because it clearly says Sunny Side Up. If you're wondering how that's relevant to the present day, just type it into Google and see what you get. Also, we see an even creepier sign which says Sunny's Panties with an arrow pointing to what appears to be a pair of underwear, which is attached to the sign. I can't say for certain, but I feel pretty confident in stating that the guy who brought that sign to the arena is probably required to go door-to-door and alert his neighbors every time he moves to a new location. Next match is WWF Light Heavyweight Champion Taka Michinoku versus Barry Windham, accompanied by Jim Cornette and the Rock and Roll Express, in a match which is obviously not for the title, because Windham is well above the light heavyweight requirement, if you know what I mean. Wyndham is wrestling in a leather vest and leather chaps, and he looks like a goddamn idiot. Cornette joins the commentary team during the match and says he and Jeff Jarrett will be sure to work out their differences, and there will be no problems between the two of them. Cornette then plays it up as though this will be an easy squash victory for Wyndham, and sure enough, he does have a pretty easy time with the much smaller Taka. Eventually, he hits him with his lariat clothesline and goes to pin Taka, but once the referee's count hits two... The lights go out, and we get a large burst of fire, something which should be quite familiar to the Waco residents who are at that compound. Of course, this heralds the arrival of Kane and Paul Bearer. Barry Windham then proves to be the smartest man on the roster because he gets the fuck out of the ring before Kane arrives. Taka, however, is still laid out from the clothesline, so Kane picks him up by the throat and gives him a choke slam, then follows it up with a tombstone pile driver. So, does that mean Taka would win this match by DQ, or do we automatically rule it a no contest once Kane arrives? These are important issues, people. We need to know. Paul Bearer grabs a mic and says there is only one WWF superstar they are interested in now. Stone Cold Steve Austin. The crowd rightfully pops huge for this because it could mean a showdown between the biggest star in the company and the unstoppable monster who has been clobbering people left and right since he debuted almost six months ago. Despite the fact we're only halfway through this episode of Raw, Bearer says he wants the match to take place next week, so suck on that, Waco. Did you think you'd get a high-caliber match on a show that's taped six days in advance? Ah, you poor, naive rednecks. And now... Cue up the credits for the second hour, some more pyro, and another scan of the crowd. We then cut backstage as Michael Cole has tracked down the New Age Outlaws. They're exiting the arena, and Road Dogg is filming Billy Gunn with a handheld camera for some reason. Amusingly, Road Dogg is actually wearing a DX t-shirt and a nifty bit of foreshadowing. Not amusingly, he is also wearing a fanny pack, which unfortunately makes this the third straight week that a wrestler has done that. Ahmed Johnson two weeks ago, Stone Cold last week, and now Jesse James. Billy and Road Dog give themselves credit for breaking up the Legion of Doom, and they mostly refuse to answer any of Cole's questions. 
The outlaws get in their car and attempt to leave, but when Billy backs up, we see that a dumpster is now blocking his path. Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie then show up, with Foley smashing the windshield with a baseball bat and Terry Funk attempting to saw inside the car with his chainsaw. Eventually, the outlaws manage to drive away, but it appears that Funk and Foley are not willing to forgive them for their previous dumpster assault. As a side note, this marks the first instance of automobile destruction on this podcast, and I am certainly looking forward to several more occurrences of that in the future. Up next, we get a pre-taped vignette where the artist formerly known as Goldust is imitating the voice of his father, Dusty Rhodes. We only see his silhouette and not his face, and he cues up footage of Dusty from his WWF days because that's the only footage they owned at this point. This segues us back into the arena where Dusty's American Dream theme song plays, and of course, Goldust comes out dressed in his father's black and yellow polka-dotted singlet, which was synonymous with his less-than-stellar early 90s WWF run. Of course, he has stuffed a pillow under the singlet to make himself look fatter, drawn black circles under his eyes, and surprisingly, he also has fake scars on his arm and forehead, with the latter obviously symbolizing Dusty's actual scars from when the dream used to blade so often back in the day. It's not often you get an on-camera reference to blade jobs, but there you go. Unfortunately, Jim Ross somewhat ruins this bit by telling us they asked for the real Dusty's permission before doing the segment, and he was fine with it. Way to take the edge off, man. Goldust's opponent is Bradshaw, so if you want to check this one out solely because it features perhaps the only time when Goldust and JBL fought each other one-on-one in a televised match, there you go. Bradshaw hits, uh, Dust Dust with a forearm early in the match, so he ducks out of the ring, grabs a mic, and says that Bradshaw should be bumping his ass off for him because he's the Babe Ruth of wrestling. The strategy does not work, however, as the finish comes when Goldust attempts to imitate his father's strategy of punching someone several times, then taunting them, and then hitting them with an elbow, but he never gets a chance to deliver the elbow because Bradshaw murders him with a lariat clothesline and picks up the three count. After the match, Michael Cole asks Goldust what he thinks his father would think of his performance, but then again, we already know the answer to this because JR told us. We then get an amusing soundbite where Dustin says, Stardust doesn't compare to Goldust, I'm hanging these tights up. Now, for those of you who are unaware, Stardust was actually Dusty's nickname when he wrestled in the American Wrestling Association. Goldust was not psychically mentioning his brother Cody's future gimmick, which he would adopt 16 years later. Or was he? We then go backstage where Kevin Kelly is waiting to catch a no-longer-face-painted Hawk before he exits the arena. Kelly asks for a comment, but Hawk says nothing and leaves. Pretty uneventful, except for the fact that you get to see a grown man angrily wheel his luggage out of a building, and that's just downright goofy. When we return from break, the lights have been dimmed so we can see the still-undefeated Steve Blackman twirl around his glow-in-the-dark nunchucks. It's an impressive display, but the phrase glow-in-the-dark nunchucks certainly makes those weapons seem a lot less awesome. That would be the equivalent of telling your friends, Hey, want to unlock the tool shed and play with my dad's tie-dyed shotgun? Not that cool anymore. His opponent is WWF Intercontinental Champion The Rock, who is accompanied by the other four members of the Nation of Domination, but he lets them go to the ring first while he poses for the crowd on the entrance ramp. And in case you were wondering, no, this match is not for the title. Not a bad match here, and as you might expect, it included even more dissension between the members of the Nation. Rock hit Blackman with a power slam and went for the cover, but Farouk then got up on the ring apron to distract the referee for some reason. Rock then went to whip Blackman off the ropes, but Blackman reversed it, causing the Rock to run into Farouk and knock him to the floor. Rock then got the better of Blackman once again and hit him with a DDT, but Farouk yet again jumped up on the ring apron and distracted the referee. While this was going on, D'Lo grabbed those magical glow-in-the-dark nunchucks and attempted to toss them to Rock, but somehow he accidentally threw them completely over Rock's head, where Blackman then caught them, hit Rock with them, and pinned him for the three count once the referee turned around. I must say the crowd popped huge for this pinfall, which makes me think they assumed this was a title match. 
After the match, The Rock starts arguing with D'Lo and shoving him while Kama and Mark Henry ask Farouk to come into the ring to help mediate. D'Lo can audibly be heard saying, he told me to do it, meaning it was Farouk's idea to use the nunchucks. The Rock yells at Farouk and demands he get in the ring. Rock tells him he had Blackman beat, to which Farouk basically says he doesn't care. Then he leaves and orders the rest of the nation to come with him, leaving The Rock alone in the ring. It was the saddest moment involving The Rock I've seen since... Well, that goofy segment from WrestleMania 32 where he randomly had a flamethrower and set his own name on fire. We then go backstage where Kevin Kelly is with Luna Vachon, who is taping up her fists. I was just going to summarize this promo, but fuck it, I have to play it for you because it's amazing. Well, I'm standing by right now with Luna. Earlier this evening, Luna, we saw the artist formerly known as Goldust, but you were conspicuous by your absence. What's going on? I am standing back here, calm, cool, and collective, just a time bomb of insanity, waiting for the luscious stable to make her grand appearance. I am the one that is going to take her at daylighter face and rearrange it into an Andy Warhol original. I am the vandal on your mind, and from this point on, I will be on you like maggots on roadkill. Okay, so a couple things here. Number one, how much herbal tea is she consuming on a daily basis in order to soothe what must surely be an incredibly sore throat? She sounds like she's been gargling gravel and washing it down with a tall glass of molten lava. Number two, the phrase is calm, cool, and collected, not collective, as she said here. Number three, when she says she's going to turn Sable's face into an Andy Warhol painting, Andy Warhol was famous for his pop art, not Pop-Tarts, meaning he mostly painted art which drew largely from popular culture. So if Luna were to turn Sable's face into a Warhol painting, that would actually be pretty nice because it would mean Sable had reached such an immense level of fame that she would be the subject of a painting by one of the world's most famous artists. I'm certainly not an expert in deciphering Luna promos, but something tells me she was going for a Pablo Picasso painting, as Picasso was well known for his images of people whose faces are misshapen or distorted. They even parodied this concept in the movie Toy Story, where Mr. Potato Head rearranges the features of his face and shows it to Ham the piggy bank. Hey, Ham! Look! I'm Picasso! I don't get it. You uncultured swine! I'd love to ask Luna what she meant in that promo, but sadly she is no longer with us. She died in 2010, having been burned at the stake by local villagers who thought she was a witch. Alright, not really, but it's not out of the realm of possibility that she was one. Also, even though I just nitpicked her promo to death, I must admit, I still found it to be pretty fucking awesome. No one is really cutting insane, bonkers promos like this anymore, so kudos to her for sticking with what works and staying very much in that growly 1980s mode. I dig it. When we come back from break, the Rock and Roll Express are already in the ring, along with NWA referee Tommy Young, but Commissioner Slaughter is then shown walking down the entrance ramp with referee Earl Hebner. You may recall that last week the Headbangers had the Rock and Roll Express beaten, but Tommy Young invoked the NWA rule that you cannot throw someone over the top rope or it results in an automatic disqualification, so the Express got to keep their NWA tag team titles. To avoid something similar happening this week, Slaughter replaces Tommy Young with Hebner instead. This leads us to a rematch from Raw Saturday Night, the Rock and Roll Express, accompanied by Jim Cornette, versus the Headbangers, with the NWA tag team titles on the line once again. 
Early on in the match, after three separate miscommunications between them, the Rock and Roll Express started shoving each other and getting into it until Cornette jumped up on the ring apron to calm them down. I'm guessing when Vince Russo was booking this card tonight, he just looked at the roster and said, We're gonna break up all the 1980s tag teams tonight, I swear to God. Eventually, order is restored, and we get the ridiculously screwy finish. While Hebner is distracted, Thrasher hits Ricky Morton with a shoulder block, but then Cornette whacks Thrasher in the back with his tennis racket. This seemingly knocks Thrasher unconscious, but fortunately for him, he falls forward and lands on Morton right as Hebner turns around. One, two, three, and the Headbangers are your new NWA Tag Team Champions. Now, before we go any further, let me just repeat that. Ricky Morton lost the match and the titles because he got pinned after a shoulder block. I went back and timed it from the shoulder block to when Hebner turned around and counted the pinfall, and Morton was on the ground selling it for 10 whole seconds. That means if Thrasher had hit Morton with that shoulder block in a last-man-standing match, he would have won easily, just so we're clear. After the match, the Express get in Cornette's face, but unlike Jeff Jarrett, they don't disassociate themselves from him. Clearly, this has been a bad night for Cornette and the NWA. It also hasn't been that great a night for the fans, because the NWA has been in three separate matches tonight, and you could count the number of people who paid a ticket to see the NWA on a double amputee's hand. When we come back from commercial break, we see a cheering crowd, and Jerry Lawler tells us that the audience is still on their feet due to the announcement that Major League Baseball legend Pete Rose will be at WrestleMania 14. But... Uh, we didn't see it. So why is this monumental announcement edited out on the WWE Network's version of the show? Well, I went ahead and found video of the initial Raw broadcast on the internet, and I would say the most likely answer is because they show licensed MLB footage of Pete Rose in action. Unfortunately, the WWE has also edited out a special announcement that Pete Rose taped for the show, so I guess that means I just have to play it here so it will live on forever. Hi, I'm Pete Rose, former baseball star and future WrestleMania attendee. During my 24 years in baseball, I collected more hits than any other player in history. Base hit! There the line shot to center. And compounded 303 lifetime batting average. Not shabby, is it? Austin, 316? That kid must have one hell of a stroke. Now, if you're not a baseball fan, when Pete ended that segment by saying Steve Austin, quote, must have one hell of a stroke, he's not referring to Stone Cold having a severe brain hemorrhage, but rather he's referencing his batting stroke or how well he hits a baseball. You see, Pete thinks the 316 part of Austin 316 is actually Stone Cold's batting average, a common statistic in Major League Baseball to show how good of a hitter you are. I know we have a lot of listeners abroad, so I feel the need to point this out. Furthermore, if you're not familiar with Pete Rose, he is Major League Baseball's all-time leader in hits, so of course he must be in their Hall of Fame, right? Well, no. A 1989 Sports Illustrated investigation found that Rose bet on baseball while he was the manager of the Cincinnati Reds, and he has since been ruled ineligible from all MLB activities, including membership into the Hall of Fame. Rose denied the allegations for 15 years, but he ultimately admitted they were true in 2004. But clearly, at this juncture in 1998, he has a lot of non-baseball time on his hands. So hey, why not hang out at WrestleMania for a little while, right? I mean, what's the worst that could happen, right?
After this, we get a video montage called Stone Cold Steve Austin's Road to WrestleMania, which shows various highlights of his feud with Shawn Michaels over the past few weeks. We even get a never-before-seen clip of Vince McMahon from the WrestleMania press conference saying, His popularity is extraordinary. He is unquestionably the hottest superstar in the World Wrestling Federation today, and even I really don't know why. Hmm. Starting to sow those seeds already, are we? This takes up about four minutes of TV time, and really furthers what I've been saying about how they keep mailing in these pre-taped shows. Next match is a WWF European title match, champion Owen Hart versus Mark Merrow. Merrow once again walks to the ring with Sable, but then he immediately tells her to leave and go backstage. Again I ask, what is the point of bringing her out there in the first place if you just get rid of her 30 seconds later? And better yet, why does Sable bother to leave when she just ends up re-emerging from backstage a few minutes later anyway? And even more, when she comes back to ringside, why is Sable cheering on Merrow, who is obviously a colossal dick to her? Oi. The finish was pretty idiotic as well. With Merrow beating on Owen in the corner, the referee attempted to get between them, so Merrow responded by shoving the ref to the ground. Owen then put Merrow in the sharpshooter, but instead of checking to see if he would submit, the referee DQ'd Merrow. Basically, the finish amounted to this. Sorry, Owen, you don't win by submission. You win by disqualification instead. Uh, great? I swear, there must be something wrong with whoever booked this segment. That kid must have one hell of a stroke. Yes, thank you, Pete. I think you might be right. After the match, Luna ran to the ring as Dustin Runnels, now in street clothes and no longer dressed as his father, attempted to stop her. Merrow also tried to hold back Sable as WWE officials ran out from backstage. Much like at No Way Out of Texas, Merrow yelled at Sable, and she responded by shoving him to the ground, except this time her shove was pretty bad. It looked like Sable put her hands up, and Merrow then jumped backwards. Dustin then tried to hold Sable back, but Merrow took exception to another man touching his wife and started beating on him. Eventually, order is restored, and Dustin and Luna start walking backstage, but Sable then grabs a mic and says, You get your ass back here, you little bitch. Dustin tries to hold her back, but Luna shoves him down onto the ramp. He then picks her up and carries her backstage as we go off the air. Ladies and gentlemen, for the second week in a row, your main event feud is Sable versus Luna. When you think about it, it's actually rather admirable. They're giving main event time to two women, especially considering the fact that there's not even a women's championship in the company at this juncture. But it's certainly fair to question whether or not Sable is deserving of that spot since she's never actually wrestled at this point. I suppose that's something the scholars can debate. But for now, let's go to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slam it like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they cluckin'. The WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap Two days prior, the special Saturday episode of Raw drew a 3.0 rating, and tonight's episode bumped back up to a 3.2, which is the exact same rating from two weeks ago when Raw was last shown in its regular Monday time slot. Because Nitro was unopposed last Monday, they delivered their highest rating of all time, a 5.1. Tonight's Nitro dropped down to a 4.6, which is still quite impressive, and resulted in yet another substantial ratings victory for World Championship Wrestling. First, a couple quick notes. WCW had a pay-per-view the previous night, and... Super Saturday? What is it? I don't even know what it's called! What is it called? Super Brawl Saturday. Super Brawl Saturday?! No, Lex, it was actually Super Brawl 8, not Super Brawl Saturday, but close enough. 
At that event, Sting defeated Hollywood Hogan to win back the vacant WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Booker T beat Rick Martel to win back his television championship after having lost it on Nitro six days prior. And Scott Steiner finally turned heel and joined the NWO, beating up his brother Rick and enabling the Outsiders to pin him to win their fifth WCW Tag Team titles. I'm going to play that clip because it's actually a very well-done heel turn, which really popped the crowd. For a frame of reference, the Steiners are in the ring doing their signature pose, where Rick gets down on all fours and barks as Scott stands above him, and wow, I just realized how bad that sounds. But anyway, Scott then clubs Rick with a double axe handle to the neck to usher in what will eventually become his signature Big Papa Pump character. There you see the Steiners. Also, kudos to Tony Schiavone, Mike Tanay, and Bobby Heenan for really selling how incredulous they were at Scott attacking his own brother. Schiavone, in particular, frequently gets a lot of crap for his perceived substandard announcing, but I think he did a really good job there. Anyway, with those Super Brawl results in mind, here's what you could have been watching on the post-pay-per-view episode of Nitro instead of Monday Night Raw. Kurt Hennig and Lex Luger fought to a no contest. Diamond Dallas Page beat Hammer to retain the U.S. Championship. Ultimo Dragon defeated Kaz Hayashi. Chris Benoit and Raven fought to a no contest. Chris Jericho beat Lenny Lane to retain his Cruiserweight Championship. Rick Steiner defeated Vincent. He was so mad about his brother's betrayal that he took his frustrations out on one of the crappiest wrestlers on the roster. Perry Saturn beat Yuji Nagata. Booker T beat The Renegade to retain his television championship. The Renegade, aka WCW's cheap ripoff of The Ultimate Warrior, had not competed on Nitro for almost a solid year at this point. Conan defeated Liz Mark Jr. Vicious and Delicious defeated High Voltage. Eddie Guerrero defeated Disco Inferno. Ric Flair defeated Brad Armstrong, who Adam and I briefly discussed last week on this very podcast. Bret Hart defeated Brian Adams. And Sting defeated Scott Hall by DQ to retain his WCW World Heavyweight Championship. For those of you scoring at home, yes, that was 14 goddamn matches. The night before, Super Brawl 8 only had 10 matches, so Nitro was basically an entirely different pay-per-view unto itself. The Raw Synopsis Astonishingly, this show featured no Stone Cold Steve Austin appearance whatsoever, and DX were only shown in a pre-taped segment at HBK's house. That means your two WrestleMania main eventers did not appear in the arena, which surely cannot have made the Waco crowd very happy. The biggest highlight was surely the completely unexpected brawl between Hawk and Animal, which certainly grabbed my attention. Kane and Paul Bearer calling out Austin was also noteworthy, but of course we'll have to wait until next week to see how that plays out. Goldust dressing as Dusty was fun, as was Luna's insane promo. The awkward Pete Rose vignette was amusing, but the WWE Network doesn't actually show it, so I feel like I can't count that as a highlight. As usual, the actual wrestling was a bit of a mixed bag, with the Shamrock-Jarrett match being the best of the bunch, while the DOA Truth Commission match can and should be skipped entirely. And speaking of the Truth Commission, at least we can finally bid farewell to Recon and Sniper, so that's a plus. Overall, however, this show gets a pretty easy thumbs down. I hate to keep being so negative with these recaps, but really, at this point in time, you don't need to be watching these episodes.
Fortunately, things are definitely looking up next week as we get the aforementioned showdown between Steve Austin and Kane, plus Mike Tyson will be in attendance. Things got pretty crazy the last time he showed up, but how will they go this time around? Stay tuned to find out. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. Send us a message at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I leave you now with another sandpaper-throated promo from Luna Vachon, this time telling the world what she will do to Sensational Sherry from when they were feuding back in 1993. See you next time. Sensational one, from this day forth, I will haunt your very breath. I will be your shadow in the darkness. And then soon, very, very soon, I will wipe you from this earth. And I, Lunavashan, I will be the goddess of the square circle. <laughs>